We must prepare for Galactus. Do you prepare it? I'm for Cloud. Hey there, and welcome to Marvel by the Month. My name's Brian Stratton. And mine is Rob Milne. Rob, this is it. This is what we have been building to all season long. It is big. It is literally big. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so we've sort of teased it. It's really the worst kept secret ever because anyone with even a passing knowledge of things that happened in Marvel Comics in the 1960s are probably aware of the fact that we are coming up on uh, the first appearance of Galactus and the Silver Surfer. Yeah, um, two of my favorite characters of the Marvel Universe. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and this story is just... The way I have I have talked about it in the past is that I feel like especially when, when Joe Sinnott starts inking Kirby, it's just right around that time, whether it's causation or correlation... It's just like Kirby and Stan figure out how to do like the perfect Silver Age superhero comic books. So, you know, the Inhuman stuff has been so solid and then they just take it so far beyond um, with Galactus and the Surfer. It's incredible. Yeah. It, so far beyond even the Beyonder, which comes later. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, even bigger news, which we have not teased at all, although if you've looked at the uh, title of this episode, um, you uh, may be aware that we have a special guest star. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, on this uh, episode of Marvel by the Month, um, and that is uh, Mr. Tom Scioli, um, the writer-artist of Fantastic Four Grand Design. Uh, he's got an upcoming uh, Kirby biography coming out this summer. Um, he was really generous with his time and uh, let us talk at him uh, for quite some time, and we had a really good time uh, speaking with him. The dude is so knowledgeable, and I think it's fair to say that we are both very big Tom Scioli fans. Yeah, I mean, I I started light. Uh, I'd seen a little bit of his work, and the more you've introduced me to so many things, and now I'm so excited because this isn't just a bio of Kirby he's doing. It's a comic bio. It's yes, a graphic yeah. novel. Like, that's a, so appropriate. It makes me want to slap my head every time I say it. <laughs> yeah. And anyone who's familiar with Tom's work knows that he is uh, a huge Kirby fan. His work is heavily influenced by Kirby. Um, I cannot wait to see this thing. So we'll have that interview coming up a little bit later on in the podcast. Before we get to that, uh, Marvel put out 10 comics this month. We are going to talk about a handful of them uh, in just a little bit before we get to the interview with Tom. But before we do that, uh, as we always do, we're going to try to set up a little historical context uh, for what was going on this month. So uh, all of the issues uh, that we're going to be talking about this month uh, came out uh, on the newsstands in December of 1965. So uh, here's just a couple things that were going on in December of 1965. On the 2nd, the U.S. Navy aircraft carrier, the USS Enterprise. Hmm. like that name. Uh, yeah, not bad. Uh, it became the first nuclear-powered warship to see combat when it launched airstrikes at the Viet Cong in South Vietnam. It's not a very um, United Federation of Planets approved exercise, but... No. Um, it sounds more like a Klingon move to me. But um, on the next day, on the 3rd, the Beatles released their album Rubber Soul in the UK, uh, followed by an American release of Rubber Soul that included most of the songs I mentioned this, uh, along with some that had been omitted from the US release of Help. On the same day, a Beatles song that was not on the album at all, Day Tripper, 
was released as a single. The B-side was We Can Work It Out. I'm, probably you've never heard of that. No, um, no, never. Yeah. It was a B-side. It would actually receive more airplay and would reach number one in the UK and the US, making it the most popular B-side song in history. It's a, I mean, it is a much better song. Day Tripper um, is great. And there is a cool, if it's sure it's on the internet still, but there's a version of uh, Jimi Hendrix covering Day Tripper. He's a little out of tune, but it's awesome. Yeah, I do love the Day Tripper riff, but I, I mean, we can work it out, just crushes it like a grape. Yeah, it's just, it is a one of those songs that seems like fully formed part of Western music. Just boop. There you go. Uh, Well, in other music news that, I'll be frank, is less exciting to me. Uh, (laughs) On the 4th of December, the band formerly known as The Warlocks played their first show as The Grateful Dead at promoter Ken Kesey's second acid test concert in San Jose, California. I I apologize to all Grateful Dead fans. Um, I don't regret saying that. I'm just sorry that you're a Grateful Dead fan. (laughs) Oh. On the 9th, A Charlie Brown Christmas, the first Peanuts television special debuted on CBS and would become an annual tradition. To balance that, uh, also on the 9th, Thunderball, the fourth of of the James Bond film series of films with Sean Connery had its world premiere at the Hibaya Cinema in Tokyo. Four James Bond movies. They're just churning those things out. Yeah, with uh, I wish I could do... Only when I'm super drunk do I think I can do a Sean Connery and I'm smart enough not to do it right now. Yeah. So yeah. maybe at the end of our next live show, we can yeah. <laughs> go into those waters. Yeah. I'm going to try to drink more in the next live show for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, on the 14th of December, actor Ted Ramey, who played Daily Bugle employee Ted Hoffman in his brother Sam's Spider-Man trilogy, was born in Detroit, Michigan. Yeah, Ted shows up everywhere, um, everywhere that Sam works, um, yep. for sure. Yeah, yeah, him and uh, Bruce Campbell, one of my heroes. This is confirmed, right, that Sam Raimi is directing the next Doctor Strange movie? I'm not sure, but I want that to be true. I haven't been interneting very much lately, so I don't know. Oh, really? Know. Is is yeah. something keeping you from wanting to spend a lot of time online right now? <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a whole uh, there's a world, I guess, and I'm trying to hide even more from it than uh, than the whole quarantine warrants. Well, you're doing the right podcast for that. <laughs> um, you know that Bruce Campbell has a place in Oregon. I did know that. Southern Oregon. Yeah. Yep. He shot one of his his movies there, which is also awesome. If anyone listening to this uh, has a connection with Bruce Campbell and thinks that he might want to talk about 1960s Marvel comics, holler at your boys. Yeah. Um, Okay. Back to the history. On the 16th of December, 1965, a 13-year-old Mary Beth Tinker and 15-year-old Chris Eckhart wore black armbands to school to protest the Vietnam War. Two days earlier, the principals of Harding Junior High School and Roosevelt High School in Des Moines, Iowa, had warned the Tinker family that the children would be suspended if they continued wearing the armbands. And the children remained out of school for the rest of the year. Ultimately, the Supreme Court would rule 7-2 in Tinker versus Des Moines Independent Community School District that the wearing of armbands was constitutionally protected under the First Amendment right of free speech. Yep. So that's one of the very few silver linings of the Vietnam War is that 
um, it actually did lay down some pretty important First Amendment law um, related yeah. to protesting it. So beyond beyond speech itself. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and speaking of Vietnam, on the 18th of December, for the first time since the beginning of the Vietnam War, the capital of South Vietnam came under an enemy mortar attack. One of the first rounds exploded inside a Saigon police precinct station four miles from the city center. So war's going great. Everything's under control. This should be over, you know, by New Year's. At the this whole latest, thing will blow over. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Vietnam some more, on uh, Christmas Eve, the Vietnam War was ordered halted for 30 hours as both sides agreed to a ceasefire that went into effect at 6 in the evening local time. Fighting was scheduled to resume at midnight as the Christmas Day holiday came to an end. Uh, <laughs> but... It would later be revealed that neither side actually ceased military activities, except for a few hours on Christmas Eve. Uh, the level of fighting appeared to be about normal for periods between major operations. So a lot of talk around a ceasefire, not actually a lot of ceasing of fire. <laughs> right. And uh, Operation Rolling Thunder halted even longer as the United States halted all aerial bombing of North Vietnam in order to see... If the NVA and the Viet Cong would reciprocate uh, for the next 37 days, American bombers were grounded and would not resume operations until January 31st, 1966. That was an actual little bit of a reprieve, but um, doesn't last long. And this thing is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. So that's what's going on in the world. That's what's going through readers' minds uh, as these issues are hitting the stands. So uh, keep that in mind. Um, we're going to take our first break of the episode. When we come back, um, we're going to just touch on a couple issues that uh, came out uh, this month. And then uh, we are going to go straight into our interview with Tom Scioli. So uh, stay tuned here on Marvel by the Month. All right, welcome back to Marvel by the Month. We're going to be talking with Tom Scioli about Fantastic Four number 48 a little later in the show. But before we bring him in, uh, we're going to spend a few minutes on some of the other marvelous moments that stuck out to us this month. So, Rob, uh, what do you got going on here? Uh, first of all, Avengers number 25. This is a pretty cool. Uh, this is written by Stan Lee, art by Don Heck with Dick Ayers. It's called Enter dr doom so we've got avengers versus doom he decides that he needs to rebuild his rep a bit before he takes on the fantastic four again so he hatches a plan to defeat the avengers uh to build you know if he beats the avengers his rep will be built then he's ready to take on the fantastic four i don't know the exact supervillain logic but you know (laughs) uh So he he hatches this plan to defeat the Avengers by tricking Pietro and Wanda into thinking that that they have an aunt in Latveria. Yes, because they're they're orphans, right? So yeah, like they, the promise of uh, any sort of extended family is very exciting to them. So they are uh, immediately like, let's get on a plane, let's get there. So once they arrive, he raises a dome over the entire capital city and has them arrested. Um, <laughs> a dome that that blocks everyone from doing anything or any you know it's talk about a quarantine he has just built a dome over the capital uh but the avengers put up more of a fight than doom expected of course yep uh and they managed to open the dome and escape and even doom admits that the avengers outsmarted him better luck next time vic 
<laughs> yeah, um, this is not going to help his rep any at all. I mean, not only did he get beaten, but he just admitted, nope, they were better than me this time. Yep. And that was that. <laughs> so, And it, he didn't get beat by the, you know, Iron Man, Thor, Captain America lineup of the Avengers. He got beat by the guy with the bow and arrow and, <laughs> you know, the witch lady and the fast guy. So, yeah, it was really resounding. Like he, he definitely lost it, yeah. it. It's so rare that doom could admit dooms like any other, you know, totalitarian. He, if he loses, he's going to make something up to make it not a loss. You know, yeah. uh, he's going to never lose face, even though his face is kind of lost. Yeah. Yes. He'll just angrily tweet until all of his supporters, you know, believe that his version of events is what actually happened. Uh, over in Amazing Spider-Man 34, which is written by Stan Lee uh, with a plot and art by Steve Ditko, we have The Thrill of the Hunt. Uh, so this is following up the epic uh, three-part uh, story um, against Dr. Octopus, um, where Peter Parker is desperately trying to save Aunt May's life. This one's just a one, sh- one and done, a one shot. And, uh, the stakes are a little lower. Uh, Craven the hunter is back. <laughs> uh, and he again, of course, wants to hunt the most dangerous game, which is not just a man, but a spider man. He impersonates Spidey, uh, and threatens J. Jonah Jameson repeatedly, uh, which I thought was pretty great. Um, <laughs> and of course, Jonah falls for it hook, line, and sinker as usual. Um, I think this is like the second, third, maybe fourth time that a, a Spider-Man imposter has absolutely convinced Jonah that he's the real deal. Um, cause it's not like he's interested in, you know, finding out the truth or anything like, like facts are his thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, but of course, uh, Spidey gets the better of Craven, um, and Jonah is, uh, once again, forced to eat crow when it comes out that, um, Craven was, uh, impersonating Spider-Man. Um, there's also a couple other subplots. One is that, uh, we find out at the very end of the issue, Betty Brant has left town very suddenly. No one's quite sure why or where she's gone. Uh, we did see earlier in the issue that she, uh, wakes up in a cold sweat from a nightmare in which Peter Parker reveals to her that he's Spider-Man. It's a little <laughs> on the nose. Um, yeah. some anxiety about how, uh, how adventurous he is and, and how that unsettles her. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. And uh, I, although it is just a kind of throwaway issue, um, it, I just, I just love Craven is such an idiot. He's such a <laughs> dude. Yes. He's so macho and. He's the only guy who can pull off his wardrobe and still be overly macho. Um, yes. He's just so ridiculous. And there's something about it that over the years um, becomes endearing, especially in Squirrel Girl. If you haven't read Squirrel Girl, read it at, for one. She has a long running history with Craven in there. It is hilarious. Well, over in Sergeant Fury, uh, number 27, written by Stan Lee, art by Dick Ayers with John Tartaglione. Fury Fights Alone is the name of the story. The reason why we're talking about it, though, is it is the uh, the origin of the missing eye. I don't know how to say that. Uh, right. A lot of fans were asking. It's like, OK, why does he have an eye patch and shield? But when he showed up in Fantastic Four number 21, he didn't have the eye patch. So we know he doesn't lose it in World War Two. So how's this all going to work out? And Stan uh, being Stan decided to make a th- fairly convoluted way to solve this problem and this is the issue um so the howlers take on a mission to capture a nazi scientist who has created a weapon that knocks planes out of the sky it's like a 
It's like a lighthouse that knocks planes out on the sky. Um, During the operation, Nick Fury doesn't quite get clear of a German grenade. He catches it in his hand uh, that's thrown out all of the howlers, throws it back, and it explodes near him, which damages his left eye. Uh, So when the mission is over, Fury gets medical treatment for his injured eye, but he refuses an operation that would fully repair it because he'd be out of action for a year if he had it. So in order to, he takes the like, let's do it fast and get me back in the field. Right. And sure, my eye will go bad later, which is just, this is where it's such a stand thing. Like your eye will definitely go bad later. Uh, So his doctor (laughs) says Fury will lose vision in the eye eventually, maybe next week. Maybe in 20 years. It's so. just not a great doctor. <laughs> no. I love that. It's going to work for maybe 20 years. Maybe not. But yeah. it's definitely going to go bad. Like, that's yes. just, that's covering all the bases, Doc. So that's why Fury wears the eye patch in Strange Tales when he's in the 60s or the present day of where we're reading when we time travel. Um, but he wasn't wearing it when he showed up in Fantastic Four number 21, which is also in the 60s, but just earlier. Right. Uh, so he was fighting the hate monger when, when they first encountered him with both eyes. So yes. again, just Stan, he couldn't just set a glass eye, you know, whatever. It, right. it didn't, didn't matter that much, but he decided to make a whole issue of it. Yeah. And the only other uh, issue that I wanted to touch on um, was X-Men number 17, uh, which was written by Stan Lee, the layouts by Jack Kirby. Jay Gavin, quote unquote, did all the artwork. That's uh, Werner Roth under a pen name. Uh, and Dick Ayers inked him. Um, the title of the story is Ellipses and None Shall Survive. Um, so the X-Men are recovering from their battle with the Sentinels, um, which was a knockdown drag out affair. Um, that we covered on our previous episode. Beast, Iceman, and Cyclops are in the hospital. Iceman is especially seriously injured. So they are recouping. um, But then uh, Angel checks the voicemail back at the X-Mansion, and uh, he finds out that his parents are going to visit Xavier's school. So, uh, So Angel heads back there first by himself. He's immediately taken out by a mysterious shadowy figure, Uh, that we saw in the very last panel of the last issue. Angel, you know, is out of contact with uh, the rest of the X-Men. So then Professor X and Cyclops head over there. Um, They head back to the school to try to figure out what's going on. They meet the same fate. It's worth saying that it it looks like Angel, the trap that Angel falls in by himself is pretty much like a wily e. coyote thing it's like a mirror at the end of a hallway and he just <laughs> flies right into it like yes. a, like the bird that he is yep and uh and that's it like that's that's what it looks like the entirety of the trap for the angel is is just put a mirror blocking the end of a hallway and he will just smash right into it and it's kind of hilarious and sad that <laughs> they got the bird man with that so yeah so then professor x and cyclops uh they're like well angel's not answering the phone let's go see what happened they also get taken out in the same manner so then uh marvel girl and beast they decide well surely uh we can figure this out despite the fact that you know everyone else has mysteriously disappeared who's headed back to the school they also uh get defeated by whoever the shadowy intruder is so by the end of the issue iceman is the only x-man who's still free but he's in a coma in the hospital so Things are not looking great. And then uh, in the very last couple pages, Angel's parents arrive at the school and they uh, knock on the door. And the person who greets them is Magneto. Cliffhanger. 
Yeah, I love the the setup for this is like a horror movie. It's just yeah. w- w- one at a time they're taken out and they don't seem they seem nearly powerless against whatever they're dealing with. And it's just like hints of purple gloves and silhouettes every once in a while for Magneto. Um, he's trying not to use his power overtly, I think. Yeah, he he I think at some point he explicitly states like I'm just going to punch you until you're unconscious so you won't know what my real power is. It's really, I, I think it's really effective. Um, I had read this story a while ago, but I'd actually forgotten that Magneto was the the surprise reveal at the end. So um, it does have like a really good sense of mystery to it. Yeah, Stan, I think just set up the timing and premise of every Friday the 13th movie from, from then on. Just teenagers getting dealt with. Yep. Uh, well, great. So, uh, so that's kind of a brief recap of, uh, some of the other stuff that's going on in the Marvel universe this month. But I mean, honestly, there's only one show in town. It's fantastic Four number 48. It's the end of the inhuman storyline. It's the beginning of the Galactus storyline. Let's just go ahead, take a break here. And then, uh, when we come back, let's turn this over to Tom Scioli, um, because, uh, he's got tons of great stuff to say about it. Oh yeah. Stay tuned. Uh, we will be right back here on Marvel by the Month. All right. Welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Uh, We are extremely excited to be talking to a man who needs no introduction, uh, but we're going to give him one anyway. Uh, He is the co-creator with uh, Joe Casey of the 37-issue comic superhero epic Godland. He wrote and illustrated the equally bombastic Transformers vs. G.I. Joe and GoBots for IDW, and he remixed the first 80 issues of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee's Fantastic Four in just about as many pages in Fantastic Four Grand Design. And the thing I think we are very excited about uh, coming up this summer, he's got a Jack Kirby biography called Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the King of Comics coming out in July from 10 Speed Press. Tom Scioli, thank you so much for joining us here on Marvel by the Month. I'm glad to. Thanks for that introduction. So uh, I'd love to uh, start out just by talking a little bit about sort of the origins of your comics fandom, sort of where it began, and and specifically um, what uh, led you to becoming a a big Jack Kirby fan. Yeah, I mean, my fandom uh, of comics was like started with like the little comics that came with like he-man figures and stuff that that those were like pretty early on and and i guess a little before that just like i remember going to like you know bookstores with my dad and like every everything in there is like so you know boring like you know before you can read but then there was like a little end cap that had like the howard the duck um collection in sort of like a paperback a little paperback size and and star wars and so i gravitated towards that that stuff. So that that might have that, that was probably the very first comics I did, like before I, I was even literate. I also uh, got into comics fandom sort of through the licensed stuff. I know I had some, you know, some like Looney Tunes and Woody Woodpecker comics. Um, mm-hmm. But the thing that really got me in was uh, a lot of like the the Hasbro uh, licensed comics, like Transformers. I think number 13 was the first comic I actually ever bought. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's, uh, definitely, that was my entry point. Um, Rob had the benefit of a family who was already into comics. Yeah. I was just, that was my gateway to other things like, you know, literature. 
uh, <laughs> I was like uh, reading comics from the time I was very young, seven, and uh, but I did have the the, the He Man obsession, so I had all of those those little mini comics that came with it. Still have a nice Castle Grayskull in the basement. Um, yeah, yeah. We didn't really have comics around the house. My dad liked um, like Superman when he was a kid, but he he said that he would after he was finished reading one, he'd rip it up. You know, they oh. just thought of comics differently back then, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> very disposable. <laughs> and I, I, I guess that's why they're worth a fortune today. So, yeah. Up kids like my dad throwing them away made like the few that remained uh, that more, much more precious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what led you to uh, to Jack Kirby? Jack Kirby, it was kind of like a, a long path of just kind of having like a vague idea of like a style and an approach and then eventually being able to attach a name to it and then eventually learning, you know, a, about that, you know, that name, Jack Kirby. So it was, you know, it, it was almost like a, a, like almost lifelong, you know, like it, like it took about 20 years to kind of get it that like, oh, the guy who drew all these, um, you know, comics that were really cool and, and created all these characters and, and, and like, you know, Thundar, like cartoons and stuff just putting it all together that, oh, this is all the same person mm-hmm. and and kind of separating that from Stan Lee too, because like Stan Lee, I was like very aware of who he was and his importance um, to the point where like, I didn't even, there wasn't even like room in my brain to consider that there were like other people involved. And so then like learning about Kirby and, and you know, that Kirby wasn't just like an illustrator of Stan Lee's ideas, but that he brought, you know, you know, just as much, uh, maybe even more to it in terms of like ideas and stories and, and, and things like that. So, so yeah, it, it, it took a long time. I feel like now, like, uh, it would, like a, a kid could find out all about Kirby really fast. Like it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't take like 20 years, you know, to sure. put all the pieces. Yeah. I, I think there's just generally a lot more cultural literacy, um, around everything, really. I mean, you know, you can go down a Wikipedia hole pretty quickly and learn all there is to learn about a subject. And also, I, I, I'd i like to think um, that there's been maybe a little bit more of a, an effort to, like, spread the credit around a little bit and just emphasize. It's like, yeah, I mean, you know, Stan's great and, you know, his name was on everything and he's in all the movies and, and all that. But, you know, he this was not a one-man show. Yeah, and, and that kind of stuff, it just... You know, it, it, it took a while to get here, you know, like, um, especially when you look at those old, old comics from the 40s, a lot of them didn't have any credits on them, you yeah. know, so you're, it, it is like a big guessing game of who who did what. And and sometimes like the actual answer is kind of surprising. Yeah, for sure. So you your comics career, you've had a, a pretty long career in comics so far. And uh, am I right in remembering that you got your start uh, with a Zerick grant? Yeah, that, that I I say that's like the beginning yeah because prior to that i was doing like um zines like comic zines where i'd you know do my comic and and you know publish them on a xerox machine and and you know just take them to the local stores and sell mm-hmm. them on confinement and stuff but the xerox grant was where i i got my comic you know out in comic stores across the country distributed through diamond the whole you know printed in, in large numbers um and that was uh for the comic myth of eight opus so yeah. yeah, that's like where it all started for me. And then was the the next major project after that? Was that when you started working with Joe Casey on Godland? Uh, there were like a couple little little things 
prior to that, um, I did like an, an issue of like a Fantastic Four miniseries and, um, you know, maybe a couple other like little bits and pieces here and there. But but um, yeah, Godland was like kind of the next big step after that, um, mm-hmm. you know, sort of like ongoing full color uh, where I'm the co-creator. Like, yeah, that was that was like a big jump. And, and that was around the same time as I did like a, a Freedom Force comic. It was like a, an adaptation of, of the PC game. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. that was that was like around the same time. Godland came out a little bit after that, but but Godland, we started work on that prior prior to Freedom Force. Gotcha. And I feel like Godland is really where you really started letting your Kirby flag fly. Um, I mean, it's it's such a wonderful, loving tribute to that cosmic space opera style. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, that was that, that was kind of the idea was was to like try to figure out a way to. Um, take Kirby and then, and then make it modern, like make it, you know, fit into, you know, modern being the early 2000s. And then, uh, you, uh, you did a couple projects with, uh, IDW, the Transformers versus GI Joe, uh, limited series, and then, uh, GoBots. And these are things that I actually came to fairly recently, you know, like I, I'd mentioned earlier, Transformers was my gateway drug to Marvel Comics. Um, that's mm-hmm. absolutely, you know, how I got in. So, and I hope this isn't damning it with faint praise, but I just thought um, both of those series were just so much fun. And considering, you know, where you're starting from with the source material, like I really feel like you did a wonderful job elevating it and really just bringing um, something much deeper and more complex, uh, but still staying very true to the spirit of, you know, a an 11 year old playing with his transforming robot toys, um, which is a really neat trick to pull off. Thanks. I, I mean, I knew like uh, transformers versus GI Joe came first and that like, I knew when I got that opportunity that it really was that it was like a huge opportunity and that, um, you know, like I, I, I really wanted to, to take it, you know, incredibly seriously, like really, you know, put everything I had into it because I knew like there was just something like, the material just like I knew it, it could work really well with what I had to offer. And I feel like, you know, you sort of put them through sort of a Kirby filter and, and they can, you know, sort of become almost magical. And then GoBots, GoBots was like a few years later and GoBots was, was one where it was like, I just kept having like GoBots on my mind. Like I, I kept um, just sort of going there for some reason, like, these you know little like GoBot stories just started suggesting themselves to, to, to me, and I was kind of resistant to it at first. I'm like, what you know, why GoBots? Like, like nobody's looking at GoBot. Like, but I kind of just went with it, and then eventually, like, I, I started talking to, to IDW, and, and I, I said, like, I don't know, like, I feel like I want to tell a GoBot story. Like, I have a GoBot story to tell. Is, you know, is that crazy? What you know? What do you think? And and they were all for it. They were excited, and and um they had like zero plans for GoBots. Like GoBots was just, you know, had been sitting for decades untouched by anybody. And and so like that kind of excited me too. Like the idea of like, oh, okay, I get, I get to be the first one there, you know, which is very rare nowadays. Like, like everything is coming back or has come back or, you know, right. like people are digging deep into their like intellectual property archives to, to, to find. And there's not very much left. So I was shocked that something like GoBots, which actually like has a lot of name recognition. Like you just say the word GoBots, like people have heard of it, you know, even Mm -hmm. if they, they, you know, that word just kind of is like in the air. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely love that book. And Brian, um, 
<laughs> Brian, Brian found it and, you know, gave me some texts like, you must read this right now, um, just for our <laughs> mutual nostalgia, but as well as the crazy, uh, I don't know, um, it's got so many different layers, um, you know, with Asimov's laws and uh, sort of the the planet of the apes, uh, you know, overlays just so many, so much nostalgia packed into one story. I, I loved it. Yeah. And I definitely had those toys prior to transformers and prior to them being called go bots even, but, uh, I, it was just my sweet spot too, for, uh, <laughs> for nostalgia and then having that story be so t- just time spanning and huge. I loved that. I, I think I remember, telling you that uh i did not expect one of the best graphic novels that i read last year to have been a gobots graphic novel but (laughs) here we are (laughs) yeah that's (laughs) and then you know this leads you know pretty much into what we're going to spend a lot of our time talking about today but um you had the opportunity to do um fantastic four grand design for marvel where the premise you know is similar to the x-men grand design books where you're trying to you know basically kind of recap and remix um a whole lot of fantastic four history in a very very slim page count um and I, I thought your end result was phenomenal, but um, can you talk a little bit about that process? Like how, how were you approached and, and what was your attitude going into it? Yeah, I, I mean, I was approached uh, kind of like tentatively. Um, uh, the, the editor, Chris Robinson, he said, we're thinking about doing more of these grand designs. Would you like to, you know, would you like to do it? And, and um, you know, for Fantastic Four and give me, give me a pitch. Give me just like one paragraph, you know, what, what issues you would cover and, and, you know, basically what the story would be, you know, but don't, don't go to any trouble. Cause we're not even sure if we're going to do it. Like, you know, it, it was very, very tentative. Mm-hmm. And so I uh, sort of took that and, and I, and I gave him what he asked for, but then on my own, of course, I just started working and working and working because I was like, okay, if this thing goes, I want to be ready for it. You know, even though they're saying it's a, maybe this is, this is big, the same way right. that like GI Joe, was like a big opportunity. This is a big opportunity. So, you know, I just, I started working on it. And then, um, you know, we talked a little bit back and forth and, and Marvel just, they, they weren't quite ready to commit. Like they weren't sure if they, if they were going to do any more of these, of these, uh, brand designs or not. Um, you know, and, and eventually like, you know, I just, I just figured the project was done. Like enough time had passed and I hadn't like heard anything lately about it. So I thought like, Oh, I guess they decided they're, you know, X-Men is enough and, and they're not going to do any more of them. And, and then, like enough time passed that I started posting some of the stuff I came up with online, just kind of like, Oh, you know, Marvel a year ago, Mar- Marvel asked me if I wanted to do a fantastic four. And, you know, here's what I came up with. You know, Marvel, I, I wouldn't have posted it if I thought it was, you know, still a, a possible project, but I just assumed it was over. Sure. And then after that, they were like, okay, we're ready to do fantastic four. Grand design. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was like, okay. And by, by that point I was already working on, you know, some, I was working on my Jack Kirby graphic novel, so I had to kind of, you know, tell uh, the publisher of that to kind of, okay, this is a really important thing that can be really helpful to this Jack Kirby graphic novel. So mm-hmm. I need some time to work on this, and then I'll, you know, come right back to the Jack Kirby thing. So, it, and it ended up working out perfectly. Like all, all the, all the, the dates and stuff lined up perfectly. 
Oh, that's great. And and that's a great transition into, you know, the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is Jack Kirby, the epic life of the King of Comics. So you said this is something that you already had in the works as you were starting on Grand Design. Um, when did you first get the idea to do a, a Kirby bio? I mean, pretty much like the day I learned about Kirby, you know, like it was like, okay, there's got to be, you know, like a comic about his life, you know, and, 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 is there such a thing, you know, like, does that exist? And, you know, it didn't, you know, and that's usually, that's usually how I work where it's like, if there's something I really want to read and it doesn't exist, fake mm -hmm. it, you know, like, <laughs> like, is it a really great, um, you know, comic where, uh, the Transformers and GI Joe, you know, are like intertwined and, and, you know, and it's like, well, there's various mini series. I've read them. They're of various qualities, but none of them like gave me what I wanted, you know? Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, I got to I got to make the, the one that I want to read. And it was the same thing with Jack Kirby. Like, I always wanted to I always wanted to, like, just read a book of his life, which eventually, you know, there were various ones uh, that that did that did come out. But but definitely like a graphic novel of his life would have been great. Uh, I would have liked to have read a graphic novel autobiography mm -hmm. of Jack. Mm -hmm. He just never did that. He did one like 12 page story about his childhood and being like in the gangs and, and fighting and, and uh, it was called street code, which was amazing. And it's like, okay, where's the rest of this? It's like, no, it was one of the last things he worked on in his life. And he only, he, it never occurred to him that anybody would want to read about his life, you know? Um, and his life's like just so interesting. And it just, you know, just that kind of like humility or whatever, uh, I guess, you know, your own life just doesn't seem that interesting to you. It's just, it's just your life. But, um, and, and it, it took, um, I forget the, I think it was, um, Richard Kyle, maybe it was, it was, um, a, um, like a, a publisher who, who, you know, was putting out this magazine called Argosy and he asked Jack, like, I, like, I want you to, to, you know, give me a comic that's like your life. That's autobiographical. And, and, and Kirby was kind of like, really, you really want that? And so he gave that, so he, if, if, if he hadn't been commissioned to do that story we would have never even had that yeah i i feel like you can put together like bits and pieces of what kirby's life was like but you sort of have to read his comics out of the corner of your eye and say yeah. it's like okay like some of this yancey street stuff speaks to like the gangs he ran in you know as a kid and some of the you know sergeant fury stuff like yeah. touches on his world war ii experience but yeah some romance things and and, and then yeah like the the newsboy legion, you know, all, all the, yeah, you get little, his work was very autobiographical, you know, his fantastical stuff still, you know, he, he claimed that he put, you know, like real people in it and real things. Mm -hmm. But again, it's like wrapped up in, in, in fiction and science fiction and fantasy. So yeah, uh, you just don't, you don't know what the, you know, what the real story is, but yeah, you can definitely see hints of it. Yeah. Um, who, uh, who were you able to reach out to, um, as you were working on the biography? Cause you know, one of the things that we've encountered as we're doing this podcast is, you know, we'd love to be getting more folks, you know, who had like firsthand knowledge of what the 1960s, you know, Marvel quote unquote bullpen was like. Um, but you know, just a lot of those folks are no longer around, unfortunately. Yeah, that's, that's the case. I mean, I, I, it's like, it's now or never, you yeah. know, you gotta reach out to who they're, I mean. You know, uh, Roy Thomas was there and he's, uh, you know, he, he's, you know, he's 
active and, and, you know, would have a lot of, you know, like, like he would be a great guest. Mm-hmm. He, he, there's, you know, there's a couple people like that, but yeah, Dan's not around anymore. Steve Ditko's not around Kirby, of course, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so what were, uh, what were some of the, the primary sources you were able to use? Um, I know there's been a few Kirby biographies out there. Mark Avenir wrote one a few years ago. Um, I think there's, you know, a couple others that I've seen, but, um, I think the comics journal had a, like a Jack Kirby, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, book that, you know, with a bunch of interviews with him, but, um, yeah, I mean, were you able to find a lot of information? Were you able to reach out to a lot of folks who you were able to, you know, get some, you know, some firsthand Kirby stories from, um, how, how was the process? I, I used, like, I was telling the story of Jack Kirby. So I was using sort of existing stuff. I was using interviews that like that, um, comics journal book you mentioned. Yeah. Um, uh, Greg Theakston, did you know as many like interviews as I could get my hands on to get like the Jack you know the direct Jack Kirby perspective, um, uh, you know like just just all of it. I wasn't looking to like um, like I felt like there was enough there already. Like the Kirby story as I knew it was was enough. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I, like I didn't I didn't speak to any of his like family uh, like at least about about uh, this this particular project you know whatever i could get my hands on of like the record the existing record of jack kirby and was there anything you learned along the way that surprised you um you know whether it's specifically about kirby or just kind of generally um anything that came up during the process that you were just like oh wow that's fascinating and um just didn't have it on your radar yeah i mean uh, just like a quick one is you know, what's Jack Kirby's first superhero? What's the first superhero Jack Kirby worked on? And, you know, you probably have some ideas in your head of what, like, like just it could you, if you threw out, like, what would your guess be of, like, Jack Kirby's first superhero that he worked on? Oh, man. I think um, it was Beetle, maybe, yeah. from, yeah. From, yeah, the Blue Beetle. And that yeah. surprised me, because, like, it's like, okay, I know there's, like, the Owl, I know there's Red Raven, I, like, there's all these, like, old, but I, I didn't know what was like the very very first and blue beetle was a was a shocker to me like i knew he had worked on blue beetle but i didn't realize that was the very first because it's not it's not a character people really associate with jack kirby if you're right thinking of the blue beetle you're thinking of ditko yeah mm-hmm. you know but but jack it was like this guy who is you know synonymous with the the superhero the first superhero he worked on you know being black beetle i mean blue beetle kind of kind of that kind of blew my mind and and, and it was just sort of approaching because again like i knew kirby's story but just sort of going back over it and just just like sort of listing it in chronological order for myself is like staggering so seeing things like that of like okay what were the early things he worked on and then the accumulation of just like one character after another one comic after another one creation after another like you can't even believe it was one person. Oh, I know. And I, I felt like if if somebody just did a book where they just like listed in in order like all the things he created, like that in itself is like, you know, would blow people's minds. You know, just 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 the the, you know, just the things he did. It, it, like I don't know what to compare it to. You know, his output is it's like Frank Zappa or something. There's just so so much stuff that you can't even wrap your mind around it. Um, I also love those stories of him like working the full-time job and then renting 
a hotel nearby to moonlight, like to mm-hmm. go, go out for lunch and make more comics for other publishers. Uh, it's just crazy. He couldn't stop making comics. He just like every possible hour of the day was, was filled up with making comics. Yeah. When, when he came to Marvel, as I understand it, I mean, it was really, he, he had, um, there was a, a bridge that was burnt at DC comics because of a deal that had gone bad with a, a newspaper strip, I think. And so they, they had him at Marvel, Stan had him, you know, as, as the, his primary artist essentially. But, uh, I mean, part of this was just like a volume thing, right? Like he, he just had to produce a certain amount of work because he was the guy that Stan Lee had to, to work with. He like he needed he needed to work a lot prior to to the sixties. Uh, he just found it everywhere he could. But yeah, like you said, he, he burned his bridges at DC, and the comics industry had dried up, and there really like wasn't a lot out there. You you couldn't you know during the golden age, there was as many comics as you wanted to draw. You could draw like that's how many opportunities there were. But it was like the the industry was really dying. So if if he wasn't welcome at dc like that's all there was was marvel and for stan lee like stan lee first of all was like a huge jack kirby fan like like he uh you know was just like you know would sing jack kirby's praises but like there's no greater admirer like he, like stan lee gets it like stan mm-hmm. lee fans what jack has to offer and and the fact that jack kirby shows up and is like yeah i'm ready to work like it it, it you know it was just like a very galvanizing thing for him and and yeah prior to that his go-to guy like stan's big collaborator was joe manili and like joe had manili had like passed away uh not not too long before that so it was kind of like he'd lost his major collaborator and then like you know the greatest artist playing a pencil you know shows up shows up in his office yeah um, so right around the time, uh, that we're, we're getting to here, um, with some of the issues that we're talking about this month, particularly, um, the first appearance of, uh, Galactus and the Silver Surfer. And, you know, we've just met the Inhumans. Um, wh- where is Kirby at right now, um, in his career, you know, like what's going on in his life and, you know, what his status was at Marvel at this point? Yeah. I mean, like in his life, you know, his, his kids were, you know, entering their teen years. You know, he had like a full house, um, and and he was um, so like he needed to be productive and make a lot of money, and he had this venue. And the Marvel comics were, you know, they were a hot property. Like like this is the point um, where it's like okay, this you know the the industry is not in jeopardy anymore. You know, like Marvel has kind of almost like single handedly saved the industry. They, that like what Jack and and Stan and and Steve Ditko created, like brought this like new energy, um, and the timing I think was good too because some of these things go in cycles, you know, they're, they're sort of generation. Like it, it just like all the factors came together, and they were sort of being embraced by like the larger culture, the counterculture. So. I mean, Kirby had like a full head of steam. It's like, okay, this is really working. Uh, we're doing great work. Uh, we're getting, um, you know, accolades for it. Like they're getting like respect for it. And then, um, you know, Martin Goodman is is telling him that, you know, there's interest in like TV shows and this and that with, you know, possibly even movies. And he kind of, uh, he, he tells Kirby that, 
you know, I'm going to set up a system where like, you're going to get a piece of it, whatever new characters you bring to me is. And so that's why we had this like flowering of like every single issue. There's like an army of people showing up. The Inhumans was Kirby created under that uh, understanding that it's like, mm. I'm going to create characters and I'm going to get a piece. I'm going to get some kind of royalty, some kind of, you know, and, um, and, and then, uh, you know, Silver Surfer, Galactus. So, so Kirby was firing on all cylinders. And um, it's kind of like after a couple years pass and it's like, hey, whatever happened to those, you know, things we talked about. And then Martin Goodman's like, huh, what? You know, or, or uh, you know, he's like, and then it's like he's selling the company. That's when you start to see um, all that stuff. You know, like you don't see new characters showing up in the Fantastic Four anymore. Or if, if, if they do, they're kind of these like throwaway characters. One, It's not, you don't get... The, the, the flowering that we're seeing in this in this era of, of just like you know just this creative explosion yeah not the first time and unfortunately not the last time that kirby would wind up on the end of a, a broken promise yeah 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 a, a similar thing happens at dc in sort of like a condensed time frame when he goes back to dc in the 70s and and you see the same pattern you know kirby comes in guns blazing creates something really cool and then doesn't you know, get, you know, what he's, what he's promised or what he's expecting or whatever, and then kind of mails it in, you know, kind of, kind of phones it in for a little bit until the next thing comes along that gets his, you know, gets his uh, creative juices flowing. Mm -hmm. I love that. He, and I've read this too. He's just, he's very motivated by, by the income, you know? So it's that, that is, that makes perfect sense that his, I mean, he's, he's getting the opportunity one to create these things, which he's always ready to do, but he's more ready to do it when he thinks there's going to be some more pay on the other end of it. Um, and it's not like a, I don't mean that in a money grabbing way. I just think uh, from what I've read of him, he's just, he wanted to earn, you know, he wanted to, he, he to grew, provide. He grew up depression. He grew up, you know, very poor. And he saw like, you know, you, you don't understand unless you like really experience poverty you don't understand like just, you know, how bad it gets. And it's like, it's like, yeah, he, it was almost like a survival instinct. Like he just had everything he could to just, you know, to do that. He's such a, an amazing study in, in contrast and characteristics that you don't generally think of, you know, going together organically in the same person. Um, but you know, he, he's someone who he really approached creativity and, and producing work as like, this is my day job. This is I have to do a certain volume of this and yet still turned out stuff that was, you know, mind blowing and uh, and world changing. Yeah. You, you read his work and you don't get the sense of like, oh, this is a guy doing this, you know, motivated by money. Like, yeah, you read work and you're like, OK, this is somebody with the soul of a poet. This is mm -hmm. like a visionary. This is somebody who's just like all in. And I think, you know, there's like a part of his psyche that was that 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 was the dreamer and was all in and stuff. And then a lot of, and, and, but then there's also part of his psyche that, that, you know, needs to live and has this like intense fear of poverty. Um, but then sometimes like, I wonder how much of his, you know, when people would ask, Oh, why do you do this? Why do you do that? And then he'd say, you know, Oh, it's, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to make a living. I'm trying to sell books. Mm -hmm. Like, I wonder if that is like, just like a sort of a defense, you yeah. know, that it was like in his neighborhood, if you said, oh, you know, I, I love great art and I love, you know, I love great ideas, you know, you, you maybe get beat up. You yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> you don't be that fancy. Yeah. That's kind of yeah. uh, 
that makes perfect sense to especially to me but uh yeah it, it, having you know liked to uh, yeah my imagination of what jack kirby was before i saw pictures and i mean some kind of spaceman like bootsy collins or something you know just <laughs> like like making elton john look underdressed you know yeah. and and it, it was so so cool to me to see him just be this this very down to earth blue collar kind of guy. And I feel that that Kirby uh, really was hitting his stride right around this point. Um, I feel like things are just really starting to click um, and really starting to mesh for for Kirby and for Marvel. And, you know, I really feel like and I I don't think this is an original observation, but I really feel like the first appearance of Galactus is sort of this tentpole moment um, where it's like this, you know, comics are different now. Yeah, it's it holds up like as its own thing, you know, in a unit, like, like it works really well in the continuity, you know, if you're reading issue to issue and then get to it. But then like the way I was introduced to it was in the treasury edition where it's mm. just sort of reprinted as, as if it's, you know, like a, like a, like a novel or something, you know, it's, it's, re, you know, in as this great standalone, just sort of like sci-fi adventure story. It, it's, it's just really great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how has the story evolved for you over the years? I, I feel like, you know, I've, I've read it several times over the last 20 years, and I feel like I get something a little different out of it every time. Um, but, you know, what would you say first grabbed you when you were younger? And then especially like as you were revisiting for Grand Design, what were some of the things that that jumped out at you? Yeah, I mean, like the, I, it, it was just everything felt so new. Like when I when I the first time I read it, I was maybe like 18 or something like um uh, and I had read Silver Surfer stories before, and I was interested in the Silver Surfer and curious about it, the Silver Surfer. And then, like, when he shows up in this story, it, like, he just feels like something totally new. Like, mm-hmm. like you know, it, 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 um, he's, he's just... Uh, and the way he's described as sort of... And the way he's shown as, like... Because, um, like, previously when I'd seen the Silver Surfer in, uh, you know, cartoons or video games or uh, comics, you know, it's kind of like his surfboard almost has like a jetpack almost you know it's just propelled he's flying but in this it's like he's really surfing like yeah two meteorites crash into each other and make an explosion and he rides that Mm -hmm. energy and (laughs) and then a a comet goes by and then he rides the ripple of the you know like it it, it was just like really like beautiful and 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 so well thought out and and just kind of pulls you into into the universe and then the the scroll are there and they're like Oh no! It's the Silver Surfer. This is bad news. And then they like shut down their their whole universe. You know, they, yeah. like, they t- you know they turn off the lights basically on their house. Uh, you know, so it's like just that buildup was so great. Like you're, um, and again, I think that's a lesson a lot of like creators took from it too. Was like, and and even Stan and Jack would continue to use that trope of like just telling you here's a guy who's really freaky, and you know what? there's an even scarier guy that he works for. And then mm-hmm. at the issue, they show you that guy, they show you go act. So I like, I was just, and, and at the time that I read it, I was like, I wanted, I, I wanted to create, I, I was interested in creating comics. I was interested in creating movies. I, you know, I, I like, I, so I was taking sort of like story, story notes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's very much like the, I mean, still the trope of many, a uh, horror movie or, you know, you see the monster in the last 
a uh, few minutes, but everything else is building up or like Cloverfield or something, you know, just mm-hmm. anything where you're, you can't, you're, it, it lets you build up the, the terror in your mind uh, yeah. before the big reveal. And uh, yeah, it's, it's so great in that pacing. And I don't know if there were, I mean, I know there were some sci-fi movies and some horror movies that touched this, but it seemed like so over the top. Uh, I mean, just really propelling that, that idea to, uh, you know, galactic proportions. So it's great. And I do feel like Fantastic 448 is such an interesting issue. So um, you go into it and, you know, we've had four issues before that talking about the Inhumans. They've been introduced. We've, you know, learned a little bit more about them, but there's still a lot of questions. We wind up, you know, um, going to the Great Refuge and seeing that for the first time. And then, you know, the first seven or so pages of Fantastic Four 48 is um, we find out that, you know, Maximus's Atmo gun, he thought he was going to exterminate humanity, but it turns out that humanity and the Inhumans are more closely related than anyone thought. So that didn't work. So then he seals off the Great Refuge, the Fantastic Four get kicked out. And so you've gone into this issue thinking it's like, well, this is going to be the conclusion to the Inhumans story. And it is, but then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, halfway through the issue, that story's wrapped up and now you just see the silver guy flying around in space and you're like, well, what's going on here? And then the rest of it is just this really great mounting sense of dread um, and the pacing of it, I think is really incredible. Starting with the sky on fire, which I, it's so good. Like just light the entire sky on fire. (laughs) That'll, that'll really start off. And, and just the torch flying over panicked New York. It's a, it, yeah, I did not expect that in the middle of the issue. The story beats aren't obvious. You know, they're like, if you were like, okay, I'm going to tell a story about this, like giant, scary, alien guy that's going to come to earth and you think how would i tell that like it goes on like like you said the fire in the sky and it goes on all these like interesting tangents and ways of communicating that um that have like a logic but like would not just just wouldn't really occur to you to do you know and i think the watcher is really used to good effect here so there there's we don't realize that he's on earth and uh until late in the issue but so reed richards has locked himself away in his laboratory um and he's He's frantically working on something. He's not leaving. Uh, he's not eating, and Sue's getting concerned about that. And then Reed winds up getting crabby with her, um, which he's been doing for a few issues now. Um, and then, uh, but then you find out that he's locked himself away, and the Watcher's in there, and the Watcher is terrified about what's going to happen because he knows what's coming. And I think we, you know, we've never seen the Watcher in that position before. We know he's. You know, he's incredibly cosmically powerful. Um, But to see him afraid, I think, really kind of drives the point home as well. Yeah, and the the Watcher, like, had been this sort of recurring character. Like, he was, like, the Galactus before Galactus. He was, like, the cosmic power. Um, And... Um, and we'd even seen sort of variations on this kind of story before that that Stan and Jack do. Like, they would do these stories where there'd be some kind of, you know, crazy thing happening, and then the only solution was that the Watcher would hand them like do this this or this or or here's this device or what you know so it was and then you can solve the problem it, it was like a like a trope they kept going to and then and then yeah it's like okay how do you go to the next level you come up with somebody who like yeah even the even the watcher is is freaked out about and yeah and even quite know what to to, to do with yeah yeah and i love that the watcher is 
I mean, most of the time when you see the watcher, he is interfering and not watching. Like he, his prime directive <laughs> is just ruined all the time, but this is the, yep. the most, uh, uh, he's just totally like he's doing everything he can to save earth. Cause it's his favorite TV show. Yes. Like star Trek, like the prime directive is there to be broken. Like it's constantly right. same thing with like the watcher. He like, he, I don't interfere. I don't interfere. And then he figures out a way to interfere. And it's like, always oh, very passive aggressive. It's like, okay, <laughs> I, I can't shoot Galactus with, the um the the ultimate nullifier but i can show you where it is yeah and I get you there but you know i had nothing to do with it. yeah just like the, the 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 tiniest little fig leaf of like it's like no i i'm totally impartial here um, it's a very yeah. legal loopholes with him yeah yeah um you know, we don't get the first glimpse of Galactus until the last page um, of, of 48. And then uh, when he does show up and I, again, I've read this story several times. It always surprises me um, that he's got that color scheme when he first shows up. He, he's got the, the green and red color scheme. It looks sort of like just a giant, terrifying Christmas tree. Yeah, he like that's another like because the way that everything's like a little bit off model is like really fun too. Like it makes it seem new, even like, cause I knew about Silver Surfer. I knew about Galactus before I read this, but it's like Galactus looks new because yeah, like they don't really draw him green and red anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and and he, he doesn't have the G on his chest anymore. And, and he's like, you know, through subsequent appearances, Kirby had kind of streamlined his outfit and figured it out. And then like later artists, you know, John Byrne and whoever, you know, and I kind of, you know, refined it to like, okay, this is what Galactus looks like. But yeah. in those, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's, it's a little funky and, and I like it. Yeah. yeah. He, he, I, I, I was thinking about this last night. I mean, because within three issues from the introduction to the end of this, this first story of Galactus, he gets to be purple, but um, I'm wondering if they colored him, like, you know, didn't give him the, the purple of a villain. Um, because they were trying to make him more ambiguous. You know, he was, he's beyond the earthly problems. So they gave him some of the hero colors and a little bit of green thrown in there. I, that might've been how Christmas tree came up. I don't know, but, mm-hmm. um, but it, it was a, a problem for the ages that nobody should spend uh, non-sleeping hours trying to figure out, but I did, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so Tom, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you approached this storyline um, in Fantastic Four Grand Design, because you summarized about 80 issues of Fantastic Four, the first 80 issues um, in 80 pages. You know, so I was an English major, but I can do the math and I know that comes out to be like about a page an issue. Um <laughs> But uh, but you spent about ten pages on on the first appearance of Galactus and the Silver Surfer. So, what was sort of your approach as you were going into this? How were you coming at it, and how tricky was it to to try to get this story across? Well, I mean, I, like I knew this was going to be central to to the story I was telling. That like Galactus is is the ultimate, and at, like after this Galactus story. Like I had read uh, an interview with Stan and Jack where, and it was around this time and they were talking about how they decided after this Galactus story, they were going to, they had to like back off a little bit because they had sort of gone to the ultimate and like, you know, you can't, you can only push that so far. So they were going to go back to like some more earth bound stories for a little bit. And the same thing with Thor, Thor had kind of reached this sort of apex with like the, um, 
Ego the Living Planet and, and Patrol War and all and that they were going to kind of like, you know, kind of back off a little because like, like, what else are you going to do? And th- there was also the thought of like, you know, uh, I think Roy Thomas had said this, like, like Roy Thomas's thought was like, they, sh- they shouldn't have even brought Galactus back. Like they should have just, you know, let hit him like sort of leave. And then that's it. Like, because it kind of cheapens Galactus the more he comes back. Like he kind of, you know, becomes like a jobber or whatever. Um, and so I was thinking of that. I was thinking like, okay, like I'm retelling the, the story. So I'm going to consolidate a lot of the Galactus appearances. I'm going to have him show up once. Yep. It's big, you know, blazing way and then go away and then come back only when he's at his like most desperate and his most dangerous. Yeah. And they're going to resolve that. And then that's going to be the story of Galactus. So he's going to, he's going to come leave and come back and that's it. So, you know, it, it, all the, all the decisions kind of came radiated from that. Nice. And then you also like, you made some really, interesting changes to the story as well. And, and some of them were just, you know, very small, but significant changes. And some were like, you know, really radical. Like, so like one of the things I, I think is just from a visual perspective, um, jumps right out at you is that, uh, you made the choice to, uh, have the thing's girlfriend, Alicia Masters be an African-American character, which she's not, uh, she's Caucasian, like pretty much everyone was, you know, in the, the early Marvel comics. Um, was there a particular reason you went with that approach? Like the main thing that I was thinking of was the fantastic four movie, uh, from like, I don't know, 2005 or whatever. And it was, um, uh, in that movie, Kerry Washington played Alicia. Oh yeah, and, and she's like a huge star. And but this was like early, early on. It might even be her first movie, and just has this like tiny role. So I was I was kind of thinking of her. Oh yeah, and and that if you know, whenever they bring Fantastic Four into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, now that they have like, it would be a really smart idea to to try to get her to reprise that role. It's kind of like it was like a bit part in the old, but like now like they could you know, uh, you know, she's a huge star and you could kind of give her like more of the role that Alicia kind of deserves. Cause I, I don't believe she was in the sequel at all. Like, like I, I don't think Alicia's character showed up at all, or maybe just for like a second, but like a big part of the second fantastic four movie was, it was like the coming of Galactus and all this, all the scenes that Alicia has with the silver surfer in the comic were like given to Sue instead. And, oh, and they also did that in the cartoon also. So it's kind of like, um, you know, when, you know, whenever they end up telling that story in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to maybe, you know, do it with, with Alicia and have it, and, you know, have it be Kerry Washington. But that, that was kind of the main, the main thing on my mind with, with that. I love that. Yeah. I, I did not even think of that angle, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and uh, another thing that really jumped out specifically about the Galactus storyline um, is what you did with Johnny Storm's mission to retrieve the ultimate nullifier. Like, as opposed to everything else in the story, which in, in grand design, which is very condensed from the source material, you actually expanded uh, Johnny's voyage to to get the uh, the ultimate nullifier um, in in this really kind of beautiful, like Kubrick two thousand one style um, psychedelic experience. Um, what what got what was going through your mind when you uh, you wanted to blow that out? I, I was thinking a lot about like the Joseph Campbell hero's journey and like all the different stages of it and what happens in the different stages. And when you like line it up with Kirby's stuff, it does line up really nicely. Yeah. Uh, 
but you know, he does hit a lot of, and then sometimes there's like little gaps and stuff. And it just like, it, you know, it, it, it just kind of came together like that going into Galactus's ship and, and, and getting the ultimate nullifier is kind of like the, it's, um, I forget the exact words, but it's, it's like the elixir of life mm. and you know, the, all this kind of stuff. And so it's sort of expanded. And like you said, like sort of like a Kubrick thing, like 2001, it, it just, um, it, it just seemed like an, like an opportunity to like expand that. And then I was able to fit in some of the storylines and things that I wasn't going to fit into the story. Like I was able to put in some of the things that happened in the eighties and the nineties, uh, as, as sort of like a, a, it's like, is this a dream sequence? Is he seeing the future? Is he mm-hmm. living in a parallel universe? And, um, you know, and then, uh, just the thing of like, where he goes through this whole journey and then he gets the ultimate nullifier and then brings it back. And he's like, I have it. I have it. He's, he's got his hands cuffed and then he opens up his hands and there's like nothing in there. Yeah. And I was just like, it's like, I mean, cause that's part, that's part of the hero's journey too, is most of the time the hero is like unsuccessful in like, he gets this knowledge in the other realms, you know, that these higher universal realms. And then he tries to bring it back to the earth and more often than not fails. Like he's yeah. unable to, to bring that magical knowledge to the earth. And so it's kind of that. And, and I was also like thinking of when sometimes like I'll be dreaming and then in the dream, it's like, okay, I find this like golden key or something. And then you almost feel like that golden key is like there, like in bed with you or, or like, like you're holding it or whatever. And then you kind of wake up and you're like, wait a second. Golden key. It's like, Oh, wait a second. That was just a dream. You know, yeah, but, you know, yeah. I was kind of thinking of that too, you know? Yeah, no, it totally reads like a fever dream. I love it. It's uh, it's such a wonderful sequence, and it's perfect. I mean, I th- I do think that if from what we see later when Johnny's like uh, having PTSD from his cosmic journey, like sitting in the dean's office, uh, <laughs> trying to figure out how to wrap his mind around normal life or going to college when he's been to the far ends of the universe, um, it is like super transformative for him. Like it, it but it's very quick in the normal comics. So I think it does bear some expansion. Yeah. Um, another thing that, that stood out to me was uh, you sort of introduced the idea of sort of a father son relationship uh, between watcher and Galactus. And then also Galactus and the surfer, um, which it felt completely original, but also absolutely appropriate like this was something that has always been a part of the story and, but you were just the first person to surface it. Um, where did that come from? Yeah. That, I mean, like a lot of that is, yeah, just kind of like thinking about these characters and, 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 and kind of, um, you know, like, like the, um, the Da Vinci code or something like we have a lot of these like preconceived notions about what these stories are, but if you just kind of look at what's actually there mm-hmm. as opposed to like what you think is there or what you've heard is there, or, you know, it's, these things do, do kind of reveal themselves. And, and a, a lot of it was like looking at like how Jack Kirby, this like outside of the comic, like how Jack Kirby describes these characters, you know? And, and I think he like, I don't know that he describes it as like a father, like this, the silver surfer and Galactus as like a, a son and father, um, relation, like he, he might, but, um, he does like talk about him as like a fallen angel and this is God, you know, and Galactus is God. And right. sort of, so like that's, that's in there. And then, um, the thing about, um, 
the Watcher being the father to Galactus, like a lot of that sort of came out of um, like the the Jack Kirby Collector magazine. Like they go through like all this Jack Kirby art and look at it with like, you know, like a jeweler's loop, you know, trying to figure things out. And like they've been doing this like ongoing um, investigation of like all these pages that Jack Kirby drew with like the Galactus, with Galactus and the Watcher that ended up either scrapped, not used, or like, you know, like recombined in a different way, like what went on there. And they're trying to figure out the story. And what they're kind of revealing is that Jack had created this origin story for Galactus that that the um, Watcher was heavily involved in and, and that the, the Watcher had like a causal relationship in that like Galactus was, you know, dying, like, like, he, you know, he was just whatever he was, he was dying. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, the, the watcher, like, you know, brings him back to life, you know, helps him out. And then Galactus goes on to like destroy all these worlds. And then after that, uh, the watcher takes this vow to never, um, you know, never interfere ever again. Now this like violated some things that were established in the comics continuity Mm -hmm. because the watcher is like a whole race of watchers and but um as far as i know like like those things weren't things that were established in jack kirby comics Mm -hmm. there's like a you know there's like a larry lieber and stan the uh watcher thing that establishes a lot of the lore of the watch so like kirby so like that's probably why stan scrapped a lot of this stuff was because oh jack it doesn't work because this but like you know, according to Jack Kirby, this is the story he's telling, you yeah. know, and mm-hmm. he doesn't care what anybody else did, you know, <laughs> and, and you know, there's ways around that. But anyway, so that, you know, I was kind of thinking about those things too, like the, the cutting room floor stuff and, and, yeah. and, and that, and that, that whole theory, like was really intriguing to me. And, and, and I feel like the story of, of, um, Galactus and the watcher and their relationship is like so much more interesting and it, it enriches these comics, when you go back to them, like sort of knowing the the, the thing that, uh, you know, Jack, you know, intended, like, like he was, it was really gonna, you know, be a capper to this whole big, you know, story he'd been, he'd been telling. And then, you know, it, you know, inter- editorial interference and, and, and he was doing sort of similar thing, like that, that he was building towards, um, Galactus, uh, coming to Asgard and he was going to devour Asgard. And that was going to be the end of, Asgard and it was going to spawn the new gods and the new gods were going to be a, you know, a, a comic from Marvel and it was going to replace Thor, you know, wow. Thor was going to, you know, and so these are the ideas Kirby had and it just wasn't going to happen, you know, yeah. it just wasn't going to happen. And, and so, you know, uh, the rest is pretty. Yeah. I want to live on that alternate earth where all that <laughs> happened. <laughs> oh, that would be awesome. Like a, a Marvel version of new gods and having Galactus eat Asgard would be pretty cool. If Marvel had new gods, they wouldn't have canceled it. Like, no? like they understood, you know, what Kirby had to offer and DC didn't, which is yeah. why DC didn't, uh, you know, keep, keep his, his good stuff going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tom, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, this has uh, just uh, been an absolute delight. Um, we are both uh, huge fans of your work. Um, this has been the highlight of our pandemic so far. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so we've got Jack Kirby, the Epic Life of the King of Comics, coming out in July from Ten Speed Press. Um, is there anything else you've got in the works that we should be keeping on our radar? Uh, 
No, I, 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 I'm, I'm working on, you know, my next big project, but it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not ready to, to be announced. But, uh, I mean, in the meantime, I've been doing a lot of like, you know, little comics here and there on, on like my Instagram and, and, and Twitter, you know, just like sort of fun, fun little experiments. Yes. Yeah. yeah we can definitely vouch for your Instagram. Uh, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's a, it's a treat on a daily basis. But yeah, thank you so much. Um, and I hope uh, when you do have something else uh, to be rolling out, um, maybe we can have you back on. Yeah, sounds great. All right, welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Man, that was a lot of fun talking to Tom. Yes. Oh, he. I'm so excited for what he's working on, and I'm so excited for what he has worked on. So it was, it was very, it was a privilege to talk to him, and he knows so much. You know, yeah, it's just- absolutely. If you have not read Fantastic Four Grand Design, I think the second issue just became available in Marvel Unlimited, like this week or last week. So. Um, both issues are up there now. Um, it's really worth checking out. If you are a fan of the 1960s Fantastic Four, he just does such a amazingly clever and fun and weird job, like remixing it and condensing it. Uh, it's so good. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Yeah, and it's also just a way to if catch up in a more contemporary way. If you haven't listened to us go through agonizingly through slowly through all of these issues um you can just read this in a shorter amount of time and be all caught up with the fantastic four very quickly yeah and i think it's one of those things that it it, it's very accessible if you don't know anything about that era and the more you know about the era uh there's just so many little easter eggs and and funny little bits to get um it's it's just great um, so that is our show uh, for this week. One of my favorite ones that we've done so far. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I'm really happy that I feel like we are doing justice to the biggest storyline that we've covered so far as well, um, which is great. Yeah, we, we've got to bring in some some big help to to get through this storyline. And, and Tom was perfect to kick it off. Yeah. I also imagine that uh, some folks may be listening to this uh, for the first time ever uh, because, let's face it, you and I, we bring no cred with us. Uh, but when you have a Tom <laughs> Scioli uh, on your podcast, then um, maybe people are willing to give you a second look. So um, if you have uh, enjoyed what you've been hearing so far, go ahead, uh, hit that subscribe button. We would really appreciate that. Um, we have a couple of great episodes coming up in the next few weeks that you are not going to want to miss. Definitely the next couple, uh, I think, are going to be very good as we continue through the coming of Galactus storyline. Um, and then we've got some great stuff planned beyond that. So uh, subscribe and you won't miss anything. I think that we do a fine job, but I really love it when we have some other people on that can bring a little bring a little more perspective to what we're talking about or just a fresh perspective. So uh, that's what you're in for. It's what you just heard. That's what you're in for for the next couple of episodes. For sure, at least. And if you have been listening to us for a while, uh, and if you haven't gotten sick of us yet, thank you so much. Um, It would be great if you could uh, give us a little, uh, maybe a five-star rating and a review on iTunes. I don't think we've ever explicitly asked for that, but that's actually really helpful to help people discover the podcast. Um, We would certainly appreciate that. And then uh, if you'd be so kind as to uh, follow us uh, on social media and spread the word, um, on Twitter, you can find us at MarvelBTM. Instagram is at Marvel by the month. Facebook is facebook.com slash Marvel by the month. 
You can email us uh, or email us a voice memo at marvelbythemonth at gmail.com. Um, or you could just head to marvelbythemonth.com where all of these things are available. And uh, when you go to Marvel by the Month, if you click the shop button, um, you will find a link to our Threadless store there, um, which has uh, the, I'm going to say world famous, uh, <laughs> stay inside and read comics Mjolnir t-shirt that Rob designed. It is, uh, it's definitely famous in some world. Let's say <laughs> 616. Yeah, I think that's legit. Um, yeah, it, it's a it's a fun design. Uh, we created it long before uh, the COVID epidemic. Um, it just wound up, unfortunately, being a lot more resonant than we thought it was going to be. Um, hopefully, we are not totally sick of staying inside and reading comics by the time uh, this thing <laughs> is is in the rear view. Um, but if we are, we'll just come up with another shirt. And I think it's a it's a, at least a positive message for in our own joking way <laughs> yes uh, for something to do during this time so i hope it brings a little smile or joy to people absolutely um so thanks again to uh tom shioli to all of you who are listening for marvel by the month i'm brian stratton and i'm rob mill and stay safe stay healthy and stay inside and read comics For Mar- <laughs> Marvel Girl. <laughs> God, it's a, of all the words that I could have trouble saying, that is like maybe the worst one. <laughs> yeah. You just have to say it a hundred times a podcast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love this uh, uh, finding out when I, what words I suddenly can't pronounce in the <laughs> sentence I'm in. I know. We don't want to be too professional, it ruins the authenticity. Yeah.